Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome to the program. You know that last part, Squirrel, which some people say, what exactly does that mean? And I just it's a reference to people who get easily distracted by bright, shiny objects or the dogs that are concentrating on one thing. And all of a sudden they see the squirrel run by and they, they just focus on the squirrel, squirrel. In some respects, we are like that. And there's a classic story, just what a difference a day makes. Eric Bilstadt, remember yesterday, the big story was, and appropriately so, the Dow Jones Industrial and the NASDAQ in in the tank, mm-hmm. not because not because there were problems with earnings, not because there was a fundamental problem with the economy, just pure panic over the news over the weekend that you've got this coronavirus yep. that you know is, is hitting China and, and people are, people are concerned. Oh, is this going to destroy the economy? And is, is this going to destroy the airline industry and the travel industry and all? And I remember saying at the time. Okay, we, we see these things all the time. It's this it's this blip, and I'm not suggesting that you minimize the coronavirus or that you go out of your way to try to travel to an area of China where the, this virus is spreading. But at the end of the day, it's a respiratory infection. It's not like it's the plague. We have these sorts of things, and we'll work through this. But yet, if you looked at the stock market yesterday, what was it like? The Dow was down four hundred, and the, yeah. I mean, it's just this enormous sort of thing. With with again, without any regard to the underlying fundamentals of of the economy, it was a pure reaction to okay, we've got this this virus. Well, all right. So for people who panicked yesterday and sold, you know, during the day, watch this. What happened if you're one of these day traders or whatever, and you go, oh my god, my my stocks are going down. Well. Okay, it's today, stock market up 200, the Dow right now up 210 points, which is 0.75%. The NASDAQ up 113, which is 1.2%. Now, it hasn't gotten back all the stuff that it lost yesterday, but the point is, okay, we're over this. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> a day later, and here we are. I, I, right, a, a, a day later. And again, I just, it, it's what happens when, again, we react to the the news, the immediate news of the moment. And I mean, I still remember when, when Brexit, a couple of years ago, when Brexit was first voted, it surprised everybody, you know, the voters in the mm-hmm. United Kingdom vote to leave the European Union. First two days, again, it's the same thing. The stock market just completely and totally plunges. People are freaked out. And then a week later, it's higher than it was before. And so I, I just... I, look, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't play Dave Spano on, on the radio, and he's probably very glad that, that that's the case. <laughs> but but again, you know, you look at market fundamentals, not, gee, what happened in a particular day. So, okay. all right, you'll keep us posted. Dow is now up 214 yeah, points. Good. Yeah, all I mean, it's, right again, because I think a lot of people, it's panic selling, and now there's a lot of people who are maybe, maybe they had a little bit of money on the outside. They're saying, you know, I think the market fundamentals are good. Earnings are probably pretty good. And, hey, the market just dropped 400 points. Now's the time to get back in. So I just, uh, again, panic 
it doesn't matter. In any aspect of life, the decisions you make when you freak out from just a, a momentary thing almost always come back to haunt you. Now, again, if, if you believe that, oh, this is just the start of this long-term thing and the market is overvalued and it's just this bubble and it's time to get out, oh, okay, well, that that's fine. But if it's just oh, I saw this news over the weekend that, you know, you've got, you know, people in China who might be subject to a quarantine for another couple of weeks. If that's what's driving you, maybe you want to rethink it. We have a lot of ground to cover on today's program. And I want to start off with a conversation about what is going on in Washington, but not not really the impeachment perspective. And we, we talk a lot about that. And I'm going to offer a couple thoughts on, on John Bolton's testimony a little bit later on. But I, I want to talk about this underlying question of loyalty. And, and I want to discuss whether or not you think it is appropriate for somebody who takes a high-level job, whether it's with government or in, in private industry, a high-level job for which you are paid well, for which you get all sorts of perks, is it appropriate to write a disparaging tell-all book while, I don't know, while the administration is still in place, while the person that hired you is still in place? Because that's precisely what John Bolton has done. And it's it raises sort of, again, Ethical is the word that I'm going to use. Ethical questions. Now, let me back up on this. For people who haven't been following at home, John Bolton, former national security advisor to President Trump, he was a national security advisor for about a year and a half. Um, they, they parted on acrimonious terms. And this is no surprise to any of us because John Bolton ha- has been a, a lightning rod. And it's interesting to me. John Bolton, with the possible exception of former Vice President Dick Cheney, I don't know that there's anybody that's been more hated by the left over the last 20 to 25 years than John Bolton. John Bolton, you you mention his name to any liberal, and it's going to be, oh, he's one of those evil neocons. I mean, Bolton... Bolton has a long history with the Republican Party. It, it goes back to, you know, Ronald Reagan. Um, he, you know, served under the Bush administrations. I mean, John Bolton, I mean, he is a notorious, he is a notorious hawk. He believes in, you know, using U.S. power to accept, you know, it, you, using U.S. power across the world. He, he, um, he thinks that we have mollycoddled North Korea. He thinks that we have mollycoddled Iran. He is a, a, an aggressive believer in, again, using military power to advance U.S. causes. And, and that's made him the target. Like I say, when, when he was nominated to be uh, ambassador, I believe, to the U.N. under the Bush administration, they, they they couldn't even send his nomination to the Senate. They had to put him through, a, they got him in there through a recess appointment when the Senate was out of session because the, the liberals wouldn't have confirmed him. So one of the interesting things about all the stuff going on in Washington now, we have to hear John Bolton, we have to hear what John Bolton said. We have to hear what John Bolton said. It's so great. Uh, Bolton's coming forward. I mean, these are people that, in general, who are pushing this, who just despise Bolton. Now, that doesn't say anything about whether he should testify or not, but it is this interesting irony that, you know, now that John Bolton 
might serve the purpose of the left. Now everybody wants to hear from him, but before, you know, he was like the equivalent of the Antichrist. In any event, you know, I just make that observation. But, you know, John Bolton has always been a very, very outspoken, not not politician, but a very, very outspoken foreign policy hawk. He has been a guy who was talking for years and years about the the deep state, quote unquote, in in the State Department before before Donald Trump picked up that cause. I mean, Bolton has been one of these guys whose whole career is based on the premise that there are all these institutional bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., who have their own agendas and they pursue those agendas regardless of what the president wants. Uh, particularly if it is a Republican president. So th- this has been, I mean, Bolton in many respects was Trump before Trump took over. John Bolton, very, very strong opinions. And I, like I said earlier, it's no surprise to any of us that there, that there's a, a clash because President Trump doesn't like to be told things that he disagrees with. John Bolton agreed, I think, with some things with Trump. But John Bolton, he's not a yes man. Whatever else he is, he's not a yes man. And quite candidly, my impression was John Bolton was, when he was the national security advisor, a lot more aggressive than President Trump was in pushing military intervention or U.S. use of U.S. might um, in a different way. And I think what happened is the two of them just clashed. And President Trump, he's the president, he got sick of hearing from Bolton. And he got sick of the pushback from Bolton and, and ultimately their relationship, and I don't know what it was before, you know, he came in to be the national security advisor, but their relationship kind of kind of blew up. But John Bolton has never been a yes man. He's always called things like he, he's seen them. All right. So that's the backdrop. He serves as the national security advisor for approximately a year and a half. He leaves under, I don't know, under a cloud. President Trump says he fired him. Bolton says he resigned. The bottom line is they, they reached a, an impasse. They reached a point where they weren't getting along anymore. And, you know, as, as happens a lot, okay, and it's happened a lot during the Trump administration, you know, Bolton goes. Donald Trump goes through advisors. He's difficult on advisors. He, um, I think he's, a, with all due respect to the people who love the president, he, I think he's a difficult guy to work for. He expects ultimate loyalty, and I, I don't think he likes hearing opinions other than his own once he's settled on the way to go he he wants people to fall in line and that's not john bolton right or wrong that that's never been john bolton so that that's sort of the backdrop of this okay so here's what's going on now the impeachment trial is underway john bolton has apparently written a sort of tell-all book nobody knows exactly what is in the book But because he was the national security advisor, some portions of the book need to be vetted by the administration to make sure that they're not revealing national security matters or things like that. That, That's part of the arrangement. So Bolton sends at least, I don't know if it's a complete transcript of the whole book or whether it's just certain parts, he sends it over to the National Security Council has it, and I think some people in the White House has it. Somebody leaks this to the New York Times, and they leak the portions of the book which, uh, again, 
Bolton says, hey, I was around. Trump knew that there was a relationship, but that the Trump wanted the aid to Ukraine tied to an investigation of Biden. Okay, so that that's that's the the operative thing. Somebody leaks this. Could have been Bolton. Could have been somebody in from the NSC. Could have been somebody in the administration. Who knows? So anything that anyhow the thing gets leaked, and that's where we are now. Oh, we have to hear Bolton testify, et cetera, et cetera. I want to talk about the question of writing the book. In the first place, our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I've always, honestly, I've been a fan of John Bolton's, and and I don't know that I'm I'm not a fan now. And I don't care about his particular dust up with Donald Trump in this regard, only to the extent that this is not surprising. They, I think it was a bad marriage from the beginning, and I believe I said that multiple times on on the radio. But but here's where I lose a little bit of respect for him. And that is he took the job as national security advisor, big time job. I think while the administrate and look, and I understand people write their memoirs. I, I get it. I, I understand that it's not unusual for people who work in the White House or work in politics or work by the by the side of power. It's not unusual for them to write memoirs. I understand it. But writing this book at this particular time, while the administration is, is still going on, and then doing it in the height of the impeachment process. Now, I don't know if Bolton leaked this, but let's assume somebody else did. You know, you get the idea that, oh, this is done to sell books or, or whatever. I guess I, I have some ethical concerns, and I like to think that, okay, if I had ever been in that position, no matter how acrimonious the breakup is, I wouldn't be writing a tell-all book about my relationships with the president or the administration while the administration was still in office. You know, once all is said and done, you know, you want to air any dirty laundry you want, that's fine. I just, I question the ethics of doing this. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And I'll be honest, it makes me think a little bit less of John Bolton. Look, it's one thing, all right, if you've got if you've got the Bob Woodwards of the world or the reporters of the world that want to write these stories, you know, they, they do these things, let's review what's going on in the current administration. I understand all that. But it's another thing, if you're placed in one of these roles to write a book like that, I don't know, but before you know, you know the person you work for is running for re-election. You decide to do it beforehand. Let's start with Al in Wales. Al, you're on WTMJ. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I, I completely disagree with you. John Bolton is being a patriot. He knows what was going on. He knew that the money for Ukraine, for their military money, was being held back because they wouldn't. Uh, announce that they're going to do the uh, Biden investigation. Bolton, before this came up, Jeff, before this came up, there, and, and you mentioned it earlier, there were other issues that Bolton and Trump did not agree on. Lots of them. And, uh, yeah, and, and uh, so, so this goes back before that. But here you have somebody who knows what was going on, who knew that the money for the, for, for the Ukraine's military budget was being held because 
Okay, but, but, Bolton, but Bolton's well, he's doing it in the form of a book. It's not like he sits down with 60 Minutes or the New York Times and does an interview. He's writing a book that he hopes to sell. What's the difference? Well, it's a huge difference. You say difference? he's a patriot. He's trying to make money off it. <laughs> that's so where, what? That's my, well, he's so, telling the truth. Well, it has nothing. Think, see, it has nothing to do with telling the truth. I mean, if he wants to tell the truth, all right, then what you do is you go through the appropriate channels and you let the House subpoena you or, or whatever. He's he's writing a book, and I guess that's my point. Yet you, it, it is the motivation that you have. I have nothing against him writing memoirs or things like that, but don't you owe a degree of loyalty to the person who put you in that position? And again, I understand you get tell-all books. I, that that is not an uncommon thing, but it's okay. It is the timing of this that I, I find to to be off-putting, quite candidly. And and I'm like I say, I'm a fan of John Bolton's. Don't don't get me wrong. I I've, I've been a fan of John Bolton's for decades. I thought it was a bad mix when you put him when he agreed to work for President Trump. I think it was a mistake for President Trump to reach out and bring in Bolton because with Bolton you you had this loose cannon and Donald Trump doesn't deal well with loose cannons. I thought it was a mistake for Bolton to take that job because it was perfectly foreseeable that the two of you would would have a falling out and I'm not suggesting that Trump is lying or that Bolton is lying. Matter of fact, I don't think what Bolton says really makes that much difference to the overall impeachment thing. But it is, I like to think that I wouldn't, I would not write tell-all books if somebody put me in that position of, of being, having access to these, these meetings, at least not while the administration was operating. There's a time for that later on. We pick it up right there. If you're on the line, please hold on. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. 855-616-1620. Dan in Brookfield. Hi, Dan. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? I am well, thank you. What do you think? Good, good. Uh, no, I just think, um, you know, uh, President Trump should, uh, his his team should call Bolton, Mulvaney, uh, Pompeo. I, I just... Uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm an independent, so I, I guess I'm kind of looking at this open-minded, but and you're a former attorney. Have you ever heard a defendant who has a, an alibi uh, tell his defense attorneys, don't introduce that alibi into the case because it'll prove my innocence? I, I just can we, I don't get it. I know it's politics. That's why it doesn't make any sense. Well, I think, I mean, thank, thanks for calling that. I mean, I, I think th- there's all sorts of things in, in a criminal case where you're innocent until proven guilty. That there's all sorts of times where a defendant might have an alibi that whether the alibi holds up or not is, 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 is a decision there. Uh, I, I will tell you this, and here's one of the things. If the Senate votes to allow the testimony of, of Bolton and Mulvaney and and Hunter Biden and all those things. It it is going to be interesting because it's going to what's going to happen is if the Trump if the Trump team asserts executive privilege, that that case that will delay these proceedings for for months because it is a very open question as to whether or not if a president says, "Hey, look, I, my conversations with my national security advisor are privileged," it is a—it's never been decided by the Supreme Court as to whether or not a, a legislative branch can can force the president's advisors to testify. Back in '74, in the Watergate things, the Supreme Court recognized the concept of executive privilege. Now, what they did is they ordered the Watergate tapes had to be turned over, but those tapes were turned over to a prosecutor. 
prosecutor, a criminal prosecutor, not it, it wasn't it wasn't to Congress. And it, it's a really it's a very, very different situation. In that case, the criminal prosecutor was investigating a crime. Um, it, it's like I say, it's it's uncharted territory. I don't know what the court is ultimately going to say. And I understand people want to hear what Bolton has to say. And that ultimately, John Bolton, John Bolton's story is going to get out. Matter of fact, through these leaks, it, it pretty much already has gotten out. Now, what that means moving forward for the impeachment is a completely different story. I don't think it changes the dynamic one way or the other. But going back to the point I was trying to make, I... I think you have to have a loyalty to the administration, and I guess it, it bothers me that you would decide, all right, we've got this election coming up, whatever, I'm going to write my tell-all book. And just uh, all honesty, the, the, if you think that the fact that the leaks of these books, it was purely coincidence the leak that these leaks occurred within a day or two of when the book was available for pre-order on Amazon, if you think that this was all coincidental, uh, again, make sure you duck your shoulder when you fall off the turnip truck. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. A couple final thoughts about impeachment for the day. The um, interesting developments. Uh, Lindsey Graham um, is, is out with this comment today. He says, look, here, here, here is the deal. If we open this up and if John Bolton is called to testify, you have to understand what's going to happen then. If we bring in John Bolton to testify, he says, I guarantee you that there will be 51 Republican votes to call other witnesses, namely the, the Bidens, maybe Joe, maybe Hunter. Um, here's what he says. If we're going to open this up to additional inquiry, if we're going to go down that road, um, we're going to ask other questions. Was it, for example, legitimate for the president to believe that there was corruption and conflict of interests on the Biden's part in the Ukraine? We'll explore that. And whether or not there's any credibility to the idea that the Democratic National Committee may have been working with the Ukraine. So, you know, Graham said, look, I, I don't I don't need to hear from more witnesses. I'm comfortable with what we already heard. But he says, just so everybody knows. Everybody who thinks you can surgically deal with this, this isn't going to happen. I'll make a prediction. There'll be 51 Republican votes to call Hunter Biden, Joe Biden, the whistleblower and the DNC staffer at a very minimum. So it it is it's an interesting road that you end up going down. And as I mentioned earlier, if the president's team were to assert executive privilege with regard to the the testimony of of any of these former officials, if you were to assert executive privilege, it's a very, very open question as to whether or not the legislative branch, the Senate, can compel the testimony of somebody who worked for the executive branch. I, I don't know what the Supreme Court would say because the bottom line is the Supreme Court's never faced that issue. The you know the Watergate era stuff really doesn't apply. It's a different fact situation. So against that backdrop, the Wall Street Journal has a really interesting editorial today. I want to share a portion of it with you because at first blush when I was reading it, I, I think – I agree with a lot of it. Here's what they say. The John Bolton report. Um, The report that John Bolton's book draft implicates President Trump more closely in ordering a delay in military aid to Ukraine is hardly a surprise and won't and shouldn't change the impeachment result. 
It does, however, complicate the trial task for Republican senators. And our advice, this is the Wall Street Journal, is for Mr. Trump's former national security advisor to tell the public now what he says in his book. In other words, forget about, you know, going through just if, if you know something, just just go public with it. Just just tell them. Mr. Trump and his media acolytes are calling Mr. Bolton a mercenary who is merely trying to sell books. Mr. Bolton and his publisher deny it. And there's no evidence beyond assertion to contradict their denial. Mr. Bolton's lawyer, Chuck Cooper, says he submitted the draft of his client's memoir to the White House for security clearance screening on December 30th. Yet the New York Times account of what the book says about Mr. Trump and the Ukraine appears a month later on the eve of the Senate vote of witnesses. The timing is Kavanaugh-esque, and that's fair. Whoever leaked the book's contents wants to use Mr. Bolton to turn the Senate impeachment trial into a larger political drama. But we've known Mr. Bolton long enough to doubt that he'd want to sandbag Republican senators or the president he worked for. He's a straight shooter, even if he sometimes aims right between the eyes. Here's where I think the Wall Street Journal really kind of nails it, and this gets lost. They write, the New York Times story contains no bombshells, notwithstanding the media hype. Anyone paying attention who has read Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson's November 18th letter to House members knows that Mr. Trump mistrusted Ukraine and considered cutting off aid. Anyone who has read the rough transcript of Mr. Trump's July 25th call with Ukraine's president knows he wanted an investigation of Hunter and Joe Biden. All Mr. Bolton reportedly adds is the news of the conversation in which Mr. Trump made a direct connection between the two that nearly everyone already assumes. This still isn't close to a high crime or a misdemeanor. Mr. Trump's reckless judgment, this is the Wall Street Journal, was resisted by his staff and senators like Mr. Johnson, and the president eventually changed his mind. Ukraine never opened an investigation. The U.S. aid was delivered on time, and Mr. Trump met with Ukraine's president in New York. There was no crime, and Mr. Trump's military support for Ukraine continues to be far more robust than Barack Obama's. I agree with all of that, and that's... That's why I've been making the argument for the longest time that this is not an appropriate case for impeachment, that there wasn't a high crime or misdemeanor that was committed. It's one of the reasons I've been saying all along that the Wall Street Journal terms this as as reckless judgment by the president in you know some of his remarks that's why i thought what should have happened early on is a censure resolution that my guess is a number of republicans or at least some republicans might have signed off on but now we've gone to the nuclear option to trying to remove president trump from office and candidly i just don't think it rises to that level and if you do then what you're really doing is you're declaring war on on any future president when you have one one legislative branch that's controlled by the other party because every decision the president's going to be made is now going to be viewed through the prism of was this done for a political purpose it is a dangerous route to go down the wall street journal though goes on and says you know what what should happen here is be, be, to avoid any claim of cover up or whatever John Bolton can come forward. 
John Bolton can give an interview if he wants. John Bolton can go on Fox News or MSNBC. John Bolton can call a press conference and he can, you know, read if that's his statement. He can read what is supposedly in the transcripts of the book that have now been leaked. And then at least that's out in the record. And the American people or the people in the Senate can't say, oh, there was some evil cover up. I mean, if that's the case. All right, maybe Bolton should just come clean, get it out there, and then move on. Because like I say, I don't think it changes the overall dynamic. But for people who say, okay, we need to open this up, we need to have witnesses, my only comment is, again, be careful what you wish for, because who knows what avenues this is going to go down. And I think Lindsey Graham is absolutely right, that if you start bringing in John Bolton, well, then what you're going to have to do is bring in all sorts of other people as well. You're probably going to have to deal with court challenges, and this is going to go on for at least a couple more months running right into the presidential election season. As I have said all along, I don't know what the American people's verdict is going to be on President Trump, but they are going to render a verdict. They're going to render a verdict next um, November, early November. We're already almost in February. So I guess the question becomes, by dragging on the impeachment process through court challenges and additional witnesses and for week after week after week, when we understand that the result is really still going to be predetermined, there's no way that you're going to get two-thirds of the Republican senators to vote to remove him. All right, given that, all right, doesn't it make more sense to just get this out there, move on, and then allow the American people to have their verdict on President Trump next November? This is Jeff Wagner. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. I guess just one final thought on impeachment. A number of people are texting me saying, what, what, does, what does testimony from the Bidens, what possible relevance could it have to impeachment? And, and that, that's an easy answer. All right, here's the deal. If, let me give you an example. If I am the president of the United States and we want, there's a plan to send $300 million to, to Gruland. And I am concerned that Gruland is a, it's just a hotbed of, of political corruption. And I'm worried that of that 300 million we're going to send, 100 million dollars of that is going to end up in under the table payments and payments to, I, I don't know, to, to elected officials and payoffs and things like that. Well, Okay, do I have a legitimate interest in saying, wait a second, I don't want to send American taxpayer money to Gruland if I don't have some assurances that that money is going to be spent on the things I intended to be spent on? I think everybody would agree that there is an interest in that. All right, so then if it turns out that one of my political rivals has ties in Gruland and might just I'm saying for the sake of argument, might be one of the people who's receiving, you know, some of that graft, some of those those payments that I have a concern about, do have a right to say, look, I, I want an investigation as to what's going on in Gruland. I want a thorough investigation of corruption. And I, I want this if if it implicates, OK, some people who happen to be my political rivals. Fine. All right. That that's fine. I want to get to the bottom of this. Now, I think, you know, you can say, well, yes, all all that. All that makes sense, and you have a right to do that. You, you Just because it might be one of the kids of your political rivals that's getting a bunch of money under the table, if that were to be the case, it, it doesn't mean you can't say, hey, I, I want to find out what's, what's going on, and before I send hundreds of millions of dollars more, I want to know 
that, that this money is going to be appropriately spent. Now, I am not suggesting that there was money under the table. I, I A lot of the claims of that fraud and that sort of stuff – I think they are overblown, but but that's the link to the whole question of impeachment and why the conduct of the Bidens and things at least might be worthy of an investigation. Again, regardless of where this leads, I'm just saying that this this whole thing is is a mess. I come back to the more basic concept of I, I just I don't see this as an impeachable offense, given all the facts and circumstances and the way this has played out. And again, the American people, they're going to render an opinion on President Trump one way or the other. And that's going to be coming up just a few months from now. Heart disease is the leading cause of death in the United States. Chances are you or someone you know is affected by it. Please join Gene Miller for our latest WTMJ Cares initiative. Help us raise funds for a local chapter of the American Heart Association leading up to National Wear Red Day on Friday, February 7th. Go to WTMJ.com for more details. WTMJ Cares is powered by Watry Industries and Premier Aluminum. Just a wonderful sort of situation and a wonderful thing that we have um, going on here. And these WTMJ Cares initiatives are, are just always absolutely tremendous. More details coming out about the, the tragic death of, of Kobe Bryant at the age of 41. And it's interesting that there's a number of, you know, now we're starting to, after the, the shock of his passing, and the the suddenness of his passing after that sort of abating a little bit you know now people are having these lengthy discussions about you know how do we view kobe bryant as the whole do you know we obviously a gifted athlete incredible accomplishments and again some perhaps as many of us have some personal flaws as well in his case some behavior that i i Regardless of whether, you know, he was guilty of a sexual assault, the behavior he engaged, engaged it was nothing to be proud of. But, you know, it again, it's the picture of people's lives. And I, I think, you know, now there's this conversation about, gee, should we even be talking about some of the, the bad side of, of this? And, I mean, again, I, I think what you have to do is you have to recognize that we are all human and people end up making mistakes and good people do bad things and bad people do good things. And it doesn't detract from the fact that, that Kobe Bryant was an incredible basketball player um, who touched a lot of lives and who, whose passing is nothing short of a tragedy. What's interesting to me is how something like this could happen. And more and more details are are coming out. I think we all know that they were taking a helicopter to fly from around where he lives into, you know, the the area where they were going to be playing like a kid's basketball game. Apparently, when they took off, the, the weather conditions were pretty good. But what happened, and this frequently happens when you get near the mountains, what happens is they were quickly confronted by just blinding fog. And it, it appears that the pilot, very, very trained pilot, who was capable of flying on, on instruments, apparently the pilot got completely disoriented. The, the best thing, the best analogy that I could use to describe this is if you're ever driving along and all of a sudden you hit dense fog and all of a sudden you can't see anything. You know, out of the windshield. You never. You ever been in a situation like that, Gru, where you're just driving along and all of a sudden, boom! You just lose all visibility. It's a very, very scary and a very, very freaky thing. I, I keep thinking back to a number of years ago when uh, on I-43 there was this huge 
huge, dense fog that rolled in pretty much um, in Sheboygan County and Ozaki County and the northern parts of Milwaukee County. And you might remember the story. I forget what year it was. But there was there was like a 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 car pileup on I-43 that was the result of, and a couple people, as I recall, lost their lives, but it was the result of this dense fog that suddenly set in. All of a sudden, nobody could literally see their hand in front of their face, and you know, it, it ended up causing this massive collision. It's appearing that something like that is similar to what happened with this helicopter, that all of a sudden you got this dense fog, the pilot couldn't see, and uh, went down, was flying too low, and then tried to go up and ended up... Um, I mean, crashing. It's just it's a horrible sort of story. But as I said yesterday, the the overall takeaway, I mean, sometimes it does appear that this is going to end up being pilot error. But sometimes things like this just happen. And it should remind all of us that life is, in fact, short and you never know for sure, you know, what's when there's going to be some sudden circumstance that's going to be, you've got all these great plans and you've got this whole, your, your whole life that, that's mapped out and this is where you're going and this is where you're going to be two years from now and this is where you're going to be five years from now and this is where you're going to be ten years from now and that's all great. It's great to make plans, but you got to recognize that sometimes life has this way of, well, interceding in those plans, which is why one of my mantras is that, that life is short and not encouraging anybody to be irresponsible, but I, I think it's also important to live for every day because you, you never know when tomorrow is going to be that day that you go to the doctor and all of a sudden you get some unexpected dire diagnosis or there is the auto crash or is the fog that comes in when you're in the helicopter or the plane or whatever. You, you, you can't be irresponsible, but at the same time, got to remember that life is short. That's one of my takeaways from the tragedy involving Kobe Bryant. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Good afternoon, Wisconsin. Welcome back to the show. Eric Bilstead, when you first started driving, okay, do you remember how much gasoline was a gallon? I think... I recall my father giving me a $20 bill and asking me to fill the tank, and that would be more than enough to fill the tank. More than enough. But you don't remember the price per I gallon. It had to have been buck ninety something like that. Okay. Two-something. All right, Gru, do you remember when you first started driving, how much how much gas cost? Well, I was, I was going to be saying around $2 a gallon, but it, I started driving after Okay. Yeah. started. So that's so your right. That, I can't be right on that one. Okay, I, I, I am now, a little high. admittedly, yeah. I am now going to, to date myself on this, but when I first started driving, I got my driver's license the day I turned 16, gas, regular gas was 36 cents a gallon. <laughs> Premium gas was 40 cents a gallon. And they came out and they'd wipe, they'd clean your windshield. That, that was self, you didn't oh, have to, yeah. this wasn't self-service. They, you'd have the attendant that would come out and they would pump gas into your car and they'd clean your windshield. And it was a little bit before I started driving, but I can even remember the days where they used to get out green stamps and stuff. Do you ever remember that? You'd get, and, and what you do is you'd fill books with green stamps and then you could cash them in for stuff and oh, all. Oh, no, I, that was, so that's, that's before my I, I, and, and that, they weren't giving out green stamps when I started driving, but I, I, I mean, I remember 36 and 40 cents a gallon. Those days ended um, shortly after I started driving because you had the, the Arab oil embargo 
in the mid 1970s and and then it just completely changed there were there were gas lines and be, because OPEC was like cutting off oil to the United States, what you'd have is you'd have gasoline stations that would run out of gas, and it got to the point where you could only you could only fill up on certain days, and it was dependent on whether you know your license plate that it ended in an even number or an odd number. Wow. It was no, it was it was. I mean, there, there were gas lines that people were in because what what happened is again we were so energy dependent on the far uh, on on foreign oil and when we kept getting squeezed we were incredibly vulnerable to that and and that that ended the really really cheap gas days and it pretty much never came back so i i don't since you guys were too young for that i, I you know maybe that was what it was when mm-hmm. you know when when you started doing that but but there was a day uh, again before the the foreign oil embargo and that type of stuff there was a day when gas really was I mean, you you could, you know, a full tank. You could get a full tank for five bucks. That's <laughs> unbelievable. It, but but it was it, it was, and, and that all kind of changed. And then Eric, you will remember, not that long ago, just a few years ago. Remember when we had four dollar gallon gas? Oh yeah. I, I mean, it was just we would four and a half. Right. Yeah. We would devote, you know, entire sake. We'd devote an hour on the program on a given day to the cost of gasoline because. I, there, there's a certain point, and and I I don't know whether it's three dollars a gallon or three fifty, but certainly at four dollars, what happens is people start changing their their lifestyle, their behavior. Yeah, right. It, yep. It's like you you start saying, okay, well, it's it's four bucks a gallon. Um, I, this means I'm going to have to rethink. Maybe maybe I'm not going to take that extra trip, or or I'm I'm going to have to consolidate trips. I, I'm not going to be able to just run out and, and drop my kid off at the at the soccer game and then just come back home and then go get him. I'm going to have to go to the grocery store. I'm going to have to yep, do all yep. that type of stuff. And, of course, for for people, I mean, gasoline prices are what we would call very regressive. It has a, a much greater impact on, on people with less money than it does with people with more money. The difference between, I, I don't know, $2.50 a gallon, 10 gallons, 25 bucks to fill up the tank if it's a 10 gallon tank versus 4 bucks a gallon, 40 bucks, $15 every time you go to the gas station. That that's a huge It starts to add up, yeah. It, it starts to add up. So, yeah, so you do remember the 4 bucks. Oh, yeah. I remember the stories about whether or not people were going to cut cable or if they're going to go up north for the year or right. for the summer that year just because of the drive. Oh, that was huge deal. Okay. That, was that around the same time with the $100 Oil barrels is that? I mean, I remember there's the the oil spike. Then we also had the gas issue. Right. Was that all the same? I'm trying to remember if that was all in the same. Time yeah, I, I have to tell you, it all kind of blurs. But yeah. I mean, I, I I vividly remember, you know, devoting you know huge chunks of the program to. At what point in time does get does a gas price start to impact your lifestyle? And I I, I do say for almost everybody, by the time you got to four bucks a gallon, it oh, yeah. it certainly did, and it affected other things as well. You know, the market for SUVs kind of dropped off. The you know mm-hmm. everybody wanted the little small gas efficient cars, and and now everybody wants the the SUV. So, okay, good. That that is the lead up to this. Cuz I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back to 4 or 5 dollar a gallon gasoline. Do you? Now, I ask that. It's not a dumb question because it is entirely possible based on a decision that voters may be called upon to make in November. It is entirely possible 
that we may very well be looking at a return to four, five, even more dollars per gallon. Why? It is because at least two major candidates, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, have both said that the day they get elected, the day they are sworn in, they will make it a priority to eliminate fracking. That's all well and good. But you eliminate fracking, which I believe has been the single most important thing in reducing our energy dependence on foreign oil and in keeping gas prices low. And I think it would be absolutely crazy to do this. What is fracking? Fracking is a a process that's been around since the 1940s, but it really, over the last 20 years, has become more and more commercially viable. As, As gas prices, the cost of importing gas has gone up, what's happened is we have developed ways to get more oil and natural gas from domestic sources. Fracking involves like drilling a big hole, shortest version possible. And then what you do is you pump all sorts of water into the hole. It breaks up the oil shale, the rocks that are that are deep in these holes, and it releases natural gas or oil that's been trapped under the surface. Right? That that's it. Fracking has led to the creation of hundreds of thousands of jobs and it has turned the US from an energy importer dependent on, say, the Middle East, to now we are a net exporter of energy. It's also allowed us to get away from other forms of producing energy. For example, coal. Lots of people just hate coal. There's no such thing as clean coal. It's dirty, etc., etc. Well, because fracking allows us to extract natural gas, for example, for a relatively cheap price comparatively. What's happened is a lot of the utilities that use this, they, they've switched over to natural gas instead of coal because we, we've gotten, uh, again, the, the fracking. So why would anybody oppose fracking? Well, because fracking has reduced our energy dependence on foreign oil, etc., etc., it has helped keep the cost of gasoline cheap. So, you know, people can continue to drive their cars, and as a result, it makes it affordable. We can drive the SUVs. We don't have to buy the electric cars. We can continue to afford to drive our vehicles. And as a result, we have cars on the road. The idea is if you do away with fracking, you will be kinder to the planet because what's going to happen is the cost of operating a car is going to go through the roof. Lots of people won't be afford to able to afford to drive as much or drive as far. They won't be able to buy gas-guzzling SUVs and the like. They will be forced out of their cars and they'll be forced into things like public transportation or taking less trips or whatever. And the result of this will be, well, fewer carbon emissions. It will be better for the planet. That's the idea. More expensive, more inconvenient for you, but better for the planet. Our number is 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I Look, I love the planet as well as the next person, maybe more. Maybe more than a lot of people. But the truth of the matter is, right now, the internal combustion engine, all right, and we, we are awash 
we are awash in gasoline and oil. We have, maybe that's not always going to be the case. I don't know what it's going to look like 25 years from now or 30 years or 40 years from now. But right now, natural gas and oil continues to be plentiful. We have technology that is allowing us to extract it. And we don't have to be dependent on the Middle East for this. The idea that we would say we're going to discontinue this process, which has allowed us to gain energy independence, I think, well, I think it's as crazy as trying to say we're going to get rid of $1.6 trillion in student loans. All right, let's open up the phone lines. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Senators Warren and Sanders say they're going to eliminate fracking. They're, if you love the planet, you're going to eliminate fracking. They understand that's going to drive gasoline costs through the roof. They think that would be a good thing because it would change behavior. I say that's nuts. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. Here's a text, Jeff. Electric cars are the future, very near future. GM just invested $2.2 billion to build electric trucks and SUVs in Detroit. Volvo plans um, to go 50% up sales on electric in five years. The times are changing, and that's all well and good. I'm not against electric cars. I, I'm just saying that at this point in time, it's still cheaper especially with fracking, dramatically cheaper to use the internal combustion engine. But but don't just get hung up on cars. Uh, I mean, here's the reality. Uh, natural gas is mainly used for it. Natural gas is now the largest source of electricity in the U.S. So, okay, when, when you plug that electric car of yours into the charger, okay, that electricity has to come from somewhere. And the plants that generate that electricity, they're fueled by, wait for it, natural gas, which is produced by fracking. Okay, so what what's going to happen when you say, okay, no more fracking? Well, what's going to happen is the cost of getting now the natural gas, now, you're, you're not going to run you're not going to run these charging stations. You're not going to run We Energies on solar power. Yeah, you, you can put up the solar panels. And I'm not saying you don't want to look at some of these renewable energy sources. But at this point in time, if you think that you're going to heat your house on solar panels in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, in when the polar vortex hits, like it hit um, a year ago tomorrow, I mean, good luck with that. I just think it's nuts, 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 nuts to say let's do away with this technology that we have now developed, which is allowing us, I don't know, to continue to drive our cars and continue to heat our homes and continue to power everything in our lives, our computers, etc., for a relatively cheap amount. Why would you eliminate fracking? 855-616-1620. Let's talk to William on the south side. You're in WTMJ. Hello. Hey, hello. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. What do you think? Uh, this is what I think. I'm gonna, I agree with you 100% uh, and everything you're saying. And I just want to add to that. If, if they decided, if they got in office and they decided to get rid of fracking, not just, you know, uh, we would suffer with, uh, you know, paying more for the natural gas, but people would lose jobs. I mean, if you think oh, yeah. about it, it doesn't just, it just affects everything. You know, you said 100,000 people have jobs. Well, let's just, they lose their jobs. People that work on vehicles and stuff like that, 
you know, people that have to go back and forth. I drive 30 minutes every day in, in my gas-guzzling truck, I guess you would say. Right. But I, and you know what I'm saying? If I can't afford to get to work, then how would I get there? A, a bus isn't going to take me out into the country. Oh, absolutely. No, you're, you're right. And thanks for calling. Just so you understand, I, I didn't say 100,000 jobs. Actually, between 2005 and 2012, fracking created 725,000 jobs in the industry, and that doesn't count related supporting jobs. Now, the, the fracking boom has leveled off over the course of the last couple of years because it has been so productive. And because the, the price of natural gas and, and oil has fallen. So because it is cheaper and cheaper, there's less profit in, in doing this. But that, to me, isn't a justification for Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders coming in and saying, we're going to do away with this. And the reason we're going to do away with this is, is we love the planet. We, we, we believe in higher energy costs. We believe in forcing people to go to these renewable energy costs that we're not ready for right now. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't want to set my thermometer to 50 degrees in the winter. Does that make me a bad person? Okay, well, I'll, I'll live with that. I don't want to have to pay 5 or $6 a gallon for my car. Uh, I don't, I've seen at least variations of that. I mean, this... And to the point about jobs, actually, what actually got me started on this is there was a story in the New York Times about, and, and again, the New York Times is all in in trying to elect somebody other than President Trump. And the story is, in, for example, in Pennsylvania, and Pennsylvania was a surprise state that went for Trump in 2016, and the concern is Pennsylvania has a huge fracking industry. I mean, a huge fracking industry, lots and lots of jobs that have been created in that area, in that state. And the concern is, well, it's sort of like going into West Virginia and saying, I, I want to completely eliminate coal. Well, all right, that Hillary Clinton said that didn't go over very well. You go into Pennsylvania and say, I want to eliminate fracking. Well, that doesn't work as well. Valerie in Oconomowoc. Valerie, you're in WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hello. Another place that is affected with jobs is Wisconsin. We have in the middle of the state the particular sand that is needed right. to be driven down into the mines with the water because it's smooth and round. Yeah. And that's there's whole companies that are there are sand miners here. Right. All yeah. That, that's like that. the right. That's like the the related industry. I mean, it's not directly fracking, but yes, it's it's the related industry to that. And and people's. This has revived a lot of communities, particularly in some rural areas. There was a period in time, Valerie, where North Dakota, of all places, that was that was where people were migrating to because that's where the jobs were. Now, again, it settled down a little bit, but why why would we stop producing cheap energy? It makes no sense to me. Right, right. Uh -huh. No, thanks. I, I mean, yeah, it, it it just it it absolutely makes no sense. Now, look, I understand that there is going to be a point. There, there's going to be a point where, and and it, it's not going to happen today or tomorrow. It, it, and it's a matter of fact, it's probably a long way off. But twenty years from now, thirty years from now, forty years from now, there there might be a point where we have depleted, for example, our ability to pull oil and natural gas out of the United States. So at that point in time. 
all right, that the costs of this will go up and it might make, you know, the desire to go to electric cars or to figure out some other alternative fine. But, you know, unless you want to see your power bills go through the roof, unless you want to see your gasoline bills go through the roof, unless you want to see companies go back to, okay, using coal, which, you know, the reason they used to use coal was because coal was comparatively cheap. Now, because of fracking and natural gas, it's there, there's so much of it around, it's cheaper to use the natural gas than it is to use the coal, and so it, it's it's better for the environment. I guess I, I just, I understand, you know, some of these things that they people throw out there. Oh, if you love the environment, let, let's, let's do away with cars. Let's get rid of this. Let's get rid of fracking. Getting rid of fracking, as proposed by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, to pander to the climate change extremists would be nothing short of crazy. And yet they're serious about it. Back with more in just a minute. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Remember a couple of years ago, Panera Bread, came out with this concept that they were going to take certain of their restaurants and they were going to turn them into pay-what-you-can restaurants. You know, the the idea of pay-what-you-want dining. And and they rolled this out with a lot of fanfare, and they said, here's here's what we want to do. We want to be caring in the community, and we we are figuring that we can depend on human nature and that this will be able to work. And so they said, "We're, we're not charging for anybody. But, you know, you could come in, you could pay what you want. Well, the the experiment failed miserably. And within a relatively short period of time, all the different Panera Bread restaurants that were opened up under the pay-what-you-want dining experience, they, they failed because they could not cover their, their expenses for whatever reason. So now they're back to the more typical model. Now, I don't know if it was because... Um, just just people came in there and decided that um, they they weren't paying enough voluntarily because they didn't have the money to to cover Panera's cost, or whether it was people just said, "Oh, you know, I'll, I'll give you a buck, even though this is normally going to cost three or four bucks, and I could afford three or four bucks, but I'm going to give you a buck because then I get to keep the extra three. In any event, the experiment failed. There's another variation of an experiment which is going to be, just a matter of fact, it's starting to roll out in Waukesha County, Brookfield Square. Now, Brookfield Square is going through a lot of transition now. Brookfield Square is switching from the the traditional sort of, it used to always be retail, you know, but now Boston Store is gone, and I think the Sears Store is gone, all that type of stuff. It's, It's switching, and more and more of Brookfield Square is being devoted to what I'm going to describe entertainment, whether it's, you know, movie theaters or like other activities or restaurants that then retail. All right. There's a new store which has just opened up inside of Brookfield Square. It's what they call a self-pay convenience store. Follow this. This is the way the Journal Sentinel describes it. Um, it's called the Three Square Self-Pay Market. It has about 400 products, including grab-and-go salads, sandwiches, pastries, chips, cereal, yogurt, drinks, toiletries, over-the-counter medications. So it's like, you know, your typical, I don't know, sort of 
sort of convenience store or something like that. They say it's also going to have seasonal items like cards and flowers for Valentine's Day, etc. All right. So why are we talking about another convenience store in Brookfield Square? Well, here's the interesting things. There's no employees in the store. No employees in the store. The only time an employee will be in the store is to stock the shelves. Otherwise, it's completely unmanned or unwomaned, if you want. There's no cashier. There's no security guard. There is no nothing. Um, Customers choose their products, scan them at a kiosk, and then pay, just like at a grocery store self-checkout. And the the guy that's... um, who's going to be operating this. He's quoted as saying, technology is the future of retail. Eventually, to keep costs down, you'll walk into most stores. There won't be employees walking around. It will be totally automated. Now, the only employee, no employees, like I say, in the store, except on the occasions when somebody comes by to stock the shelf, they do say that the store is going to be under surveillance, presumably electronic surveillance is what that means, at all times. If somebody needs assistance, you can talk to someone via the kiosk. So do you have Anison? You know, you push the button and somebody could tell you that. But there's nobody on the premises. There are more than 40 of these three-square self-pay markets nationwide, and they've got, you know, other formats for this. All right, I want to open up the phone lines, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, on the surface, let, let's think this through. It, it, it has, from the business owner, it has this appeal, the idea that you, you don't have to have these nagging employees that you have to hire and pay and have sit there, and then they get sick, and you got to find somebody else, or they call in sick or, or whatever, and you don't have to pay benefits, and you don't have to worry about schedules. You don't need these nagging employees. You know, you, you've got, it's all automated, and all you have to do is just, you know, somebody shows up at the kiosk, and it's like the self-service thing, and then you move on. Okay, that's that, that's the plus side of it. The negative side is there's nobody there. So if somebody, some progressively educated teenagers, for example, decide that they want to come in and they want to take all the stuff off the shelves and run out, they're, you know, you're going to have them on a security camera, but you're not going to be able to do anything about it, at least in the short term. All right, let's open up to phone lines, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand the concept. I get the concept. Is this concept practical? Will this concept work? Now, they try it sometimes like in employee break rooms and things like that. And and I understand it in a controlled setting of an employee break room where, you know, everybody's working for the same company. And, you know, the one worker is going to probably know or management's going to know if somebody's coming in and ripping off the place. But this is. You just walk into the store. It is in a shopping mall, and there's nobody there. Will this concept work? Can we trust our fellow man and woman enough to make sure that people aren't going to rip this place off? Our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Will this work, or will it crash and burn 
not unlike the Panera's pay what you want for lunch idea did. Okay, can we trust people enough to make this work? I, I, look, I'm trying to be a glass is half full guy this year. That's one of my New Year's resolutions. But I got to admit, I'm a little bit skeptical. Is it going to work? We discuss in just a moment. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is Jeff Wagner. We discuss in just a moment. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, I, I like to believe in the better angels of human nature. I just... I'm looking at this concept of a convenience store in a mall that's completely unstaffed. And candidly, I guess I just don't trust human nature that much. Now, people are saying, well, you know, there's a mattress store that advertises on your station that says they don't have people in the mattress store. Yeah, but but that's a mattress store. I mean, how many people are going to go into a store and steal a bet? I mean, that that's a that's and I'm sure that probably happens a little bit. But but that's that's difficult. We're talking about a convenience store with 400 plus items. And, and I just think, you know, it, will, would most people be honest? Of course, most people would be honest. But all it takes is is that five percent to go in and to steal you blind. Um, all right. Uh, 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line let's see um uh, dot, 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 dot. um people still wanting to write in about president trump got to get over yourselves you can trust most people but it only takes a few people to mess up something like that and there definitely will be a few people abusing it well i think that there's an element to that jeff people are never that honest what are these store owners thinking well i, I think they're they're thinking that, you know, people will like the concept and they're thinking that they can keep costs low enough that it's going to be a boon to the consumers. And I appreciate that. I mean, look, I, I, you look at what goes on in grocery stores nowadays as they, they, they cut back people and there's fewer and fewer checkout lines and more and more of the self-service things. But but the grocery stores, they're not peopleless. I mean, there, there's store I go to, there's almost always somebody in the self-service line, an employee that's there to again, help assist people with, with that, and there's still other people around there. They're not just empty saying, here, come on in and take whatever you want off the shelves and then walk out, and we're going to, you know, hope that you're going to be, um, that, that you're going to be okay. Now, um, Tech says, Jeff, here's the point, though. The missing goods, and yes, there will be shoplifting, will equal out to employee wages. So the argument would be, yeah, whatever we lose in thefts, we're going to still come out ahead because we're not paying people's wages. I don't know. Um, you know, I I don't know. Jeff, um, you already have roving gangs of youth in the area, bum-rushing stores that have securities and employees. Going into empty stores, they will have a field day. Well, I, I wonder that because, you know, in existing stores, you, you have – depending on what the store is, but you have a huge problem in some areas with, with shoplifting now and and theft. So the question becomes, if that's the problem that you're having now, when you've got you know people that are in the stores, what's going to happen when there's nobody in the store? And I, look, I, you would like to think that something like this would work. And maybe the calculation, maybe this is kind of like, okay, the, the analytics in basketball, 
that the new analytics thing in basketball is shoot three-point shots. And, and the, there's the, the science says you're going to miss more three-point shots, but because three points is better than two points, you're better off just shooting three-point shots a lot because, you know, overall you will end up doing better. Maybe the thinking on this is, yes, there's going to be employee theft, like one of the listeners was texting. Maybe there's going to be employee theft, but, you know, the amount that we're going to save by not having people in the stores is going to put us uh, ahead. I uh, I just don't think so, uh, but but it'll be interesting to see. And maybe you have to you know pick you know maybe you have to pick you know locations. Okay, Jeff, my daughter was at the shop at a particular shopping center off of 84th and Layton. Two women came running out of Marshalls with their arms so full they were tripping over the clothes they were all carrying. Um, she knew that they were ripping off the store. She took pictures of them, the car, and the license plate. She called the police right away to inform them. She gave them the license plate, the description of the two women, told them what they were carrying. She said it had to be hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise. The police officer called her back a half hour later and said the store never reported it. They were not doing anything. So, yes, there will be a lot of shoplifting. Yeah, that's, I mean, see, that's one of the other issues that's out there. It's one of the issues that I think has hurt some malls in the area where the mall owners have discouraged stores from reporting shoplifting because you report shoplifting and then there's a police report and that becomes a public record. And then the word gets out because some intrepid radio reporter or TV reporter or newspaper reporter goes out and says, gee, XYZ Shopping Center has had all these reports of shoplifting and people begin to perceive that, hey, maybe this is is kind of a, a dangerous place. So they, they stop shopping there. So the idea is we'll eat some of this theft. We won't report it because we don't want to give the impression that there's as much theft going on as there actually is. And that's a decision that ends up being made. Look, I hope something like this works out. My prediction, my prediction, and it, it, it's, it's Brookfield Square. So maybe they're figuring, all right, our, our five-finger discount isn't going to be as great here don't know about that. My guess is, and I look, I maybe I'm going to be wrong about this because there's some business trends that I, I nail on the head, and there's some that I just I that they succeed, and I don't understand it. I'm, I hope this business succeeds. I am skeptical that two years from now this store is still going to be open. Hope I'm wrong. Hope they do well. I'm just not sure I have that much faith in human nature. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner. So very glad to have you with us. Okay, group producing the show today and always. You're a baseball fan. See the reports. The uh, Chicago Cubs have signed former Brewers reliever Jeremy Jeffress. See that? Yeah, I mean, with the season that we had with him last year, I, I'm a huge fan of JJ, but I, I, you think I, he's I done? couldn't, I couldn't see us re-signing him. Right. So you're not. This, this isn't one. Oh my gosh, the the Chicago Cubs have stolen a key cog of the Brewers' future away. No, not really. But doesn't he have? He Jeremy Jeffress owns like a food truck here in town, doesn't he? Like he was operating like a food truck business here. What? Okay, so, you now exceeded my knowledge of this. No. <laughs> okay. Well, he uh, Jer- uh, Jeremy Jeffress, who was a very very important part of the Brewers' playoff run a couple years ago. Um, two years ago, but um, sort of 
messed up his shoulder and really had had a dreadful had a dreadful 2019 to the point that the Brewers let him go. Um, he signed a deal eight hundred fifty thousand dollars with incentives for another two hundred thousand dollars to pitch for the Chicago Cubs. Um, I I wish him the the best. Had like I say a a great a great year a couple of years ago. At the same time, and and maybe I'll eat these words. I, I don't. I'm not worried. I, it, Jeremy Jeffress looked like he was done. Now, I, I, people can turn it around. These relievers can turn around. But this isn't one where I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the Cubs have made this major step towards the, the World Series. I didn't realize, but they also signed Hernan Perez. Um, he's also a Chicago Cub um, free agent. Huh. I didn't realize that either. So that. the Now, this is an interesting sort of dynamic, and I, I want people to understand this. The, I mean it the right way, but it always used to be that teams like the Brewers would, would end up signing the cast-offs. And, and these, these aren't free agent deals. These, these aren't deals. I mean, the Brewers cut these guys. The Brewers, remember, they sent Perez down to the minor leagues, and then, you know, he, he was eligible to go somewhere else, and he ended up coming back. So these are, these are guys that it wasn't that the Brewers couldn't necessarily afford to pay him. It made, they made the decision to move on, and, and now the Cubs have picked them up. You know, it used to be... That like the teams like the Brewers would be getting the Cubs castoffs. Now it it's the other way around, where you've got the Cubs that are picking up the Brewers castoff. And I again, I, I Jeffress Perez, that they, they were great contributors to the Brewers, but it's this says more about the Cubs than they're picking up like people that the Brewers have decided they've got to move on from, and not because of cost than it does about the Brewers. So maybe, you know, maybe again they're gonna Jeffress and Perez, they're gonna they're gonna see the um gonna see the Brewers a lot next year and maybe I will eat my words on this, but at least at this point in time, I I, I don't think Brewers fans need to be worried about these acquisitions. It's not like Yelich is going to the Cubs anytime soon. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Melissa, do you know who Janine Cummins is? I do not know. Okay. Ruth, you know who Janine? Okay. Um, not surprisingly, you, you will, because she has landed smack dab into a major controversy involving the outrage culture and Oprah Winfrey... And the ladies on The View and the New York Times. Here, here is, is the deal. She is an American author. And she's written a handful of books. But her new book, it's a book called American Dirt. And, and I'll tell you about what it's about in just a minute. But when this book came up for auction, when she put it on the block in 2018, it set off a bidding war. It sold to a publisher for seven figures. And it's been getting all these just glowing, at least initially, glowing reviews. Last week, oh, Oprah Winfrey. And, you know, when, when it comes to Oprah's book club, you know, whatever she touches becomes gold. Right. So she came out and she she's made this this book called American Dirt. She's made this the the next book for the Oprah Winfrey book club. So th- this is like it, it guarantees that it's going to be a, a, a bestseller. And when she announced that this book was being chosen, she said, I feel everybody who reads this book is going to be immersed in the experience of what it means to be a migrant on the run for freedom. 
Now, now let me tell you just quickly about the, the book American Dirt. It tells the story of a mother and bookstore owner in Acapulco, Mexico, who attempts to escape to the United States with her son after their family, uh, members of their family is killed by a drug cartel. So it's, it's one of these stories about, um, again, immigrants fleeing, you know, persecution in this case in Mexico and, and the struggles and the travails that they have to go through to get to the United States. It, it's a, it's a fiction novel. Now, she, to, to write this book, she apparently, um, spent months, months and months and months conducting research in Mexico. She visited migrant shelters. She visited orphanages. She interviewed humanitarian aid workers. She interviewed lawyers who work with migrants. She volunteered at a soup kitchen in Tijuana. So, I mean, she went down and she spent months and months of time researching this book, which is about, again, a, a woman from Mexico who, you know, is fleeing persecution with her son. So that's that, that's the basis. You, you get the idea of this. And Oprah loves it, and a lot of other people at least initially loved it because they say it's it's sort of like – it's it's a ver it's another version of like the grapes of wrath you know the great John Steinbeck book that that followed the the travels of you know people through the depression you know trying to trying to get to California that was going to be the the promised land you know it it's that they they say it's that type of book it is reminiscent of the grapes of wrath except this is from the perspective of of a woman from Acapulco Mexico who is trying to get to the United States. All right, so you might say to me, okay, that's all well and good, Jeff. I get it. Oprah Winfrey, American Dirt, it's getting all this attention. Why has this now been been controversial? It is controversial because of the author. Um, and, and this is where kind of the outrage culture comes in. The author, Janine Cummins, is is not Mexican. She is not you know, Hispanic. She has never been, uh, uh, you know, a, a mother in Acapulco, Mexico, who lost her, who lost her family and had to go on this trail. She, in fact, um, now she was born in Spain, but she's, she, she's essentially a, a white bread, you know, United States citizen. Her father was um, a member of the U.S. Navy. Her mother was a nurse. She grew up in Gathersburg, Maryland. She went to Towson University. Um, she um, then moved to Belfast, Ireland for a couple years. She moved back to the United States in 1997. She began working um, at a publishing house in New York City, and, and then ultimately, you know, that led to her, to her being an author. In other words, she has nothing at all in common with the Mexican heroine protagonist of of her book. And now there's all these people who are upset about this. I mean, how can Oprah, how can you be supporting, how can you be endorsing this book that claims to tell this story of, again, this woman from Mexico fighting to be free when it's being written by someone who has no cultural connection at all to the story? Our number, 855 616 
1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Is this a valid concern? If you are a white male, for example, can you write a fictional book? Can you write a can you write a novel about the experience of I don't know a black man in Selma, Alabama, in 1955? Can can you can you do that? Is it possible to do that fairly and accurately? Or if we're going to again have fiction books, do they have to be written? by people who can at least identify on one level with that experience. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. What do you think? Is this a legitimate criticism? Should we fault, should we not want to buy this book? Should we criticize the book because it's not written by a Latina woman? It's written by and researched by somebody who is anything but that do you have to have that experience to to do this or is this is this i guess what's the term cultural appropriation you know by by being a non-hispanic non-latina woman you know who's writing this fictional story about this woman's travels all right is it cultural appropriation what do you think i'll give you my answer in just a minute 855-616-1620. 855-616-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. American Dirt now getting criticized because, well, the, the author has no cultural identification with the characters in the book. D- do you need to do that? We discuss in just a moment. Back to Take Your Calls. Here's WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. The, the book is called American Dirt. And like I say, it went for seven figures. It's supposed to be this huge bestseller, but now it is incredibly controversial, in in part because the author, who writes about the experience of a a Mexican woman trying to fight her way with her child into the United States. So it, it tells that story of the journey. Well, the author is not a Mexican woman. The author has never been involved in the migrant struggle trying to get into the United States. And people are saying it, it, it's cultural appropriation. All right, really? Let's start with Lisa in Milwaukee. Lisa, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Lisa. I'm calling in my car. Just, I'm just um, calling to say that I really believe that um, the whole point is it's, it's fictional. So in other words, anyone can be any sex, race, cultural background. Um, to write a book. You do not, that's the whole point of fiction. I do believe it sounds like she's done her research, so she's got a great feeling for somebody of that ethnic background, but I don't think it should make a difference. Right, because it it is fiction. I mean, J.K. Rollins, who wrote J.K. Rollins, who wrote the Harry Potter stuff, she's not a wizard. Does that mean that she can't write about wizards, for goodness sakes? Exactly, and there are men who write from a woman's voice, and it it's a very well-written book, so I think that's the whole point. A good author can be writing about any any story, and that's the whole point. Well, exactly. I mean, th- thanks for calling. I mean, th- this is it is a work of fiction, and, and I think you know if you want to research it, what what difference does it make? Now, some people are saying, well, we don't think some of the portrayals are, are accurate or whatever, but all right, that 
let's let's understand what the real issue is. The real issue is this woman is not a Latina. She is writing about the experience of a Mexican woman, and there's a lot of people that have their that, that just have their noses bent out of shape over this. And I guess I will tell you, I I think it's it's completely and totally absurd. I mean, again, it it's it is fiction. If um, for example, over the last couple of years, we've taken a number of trips. We've taken a couple of listener trips to Europe, and that experience, coupled with some people who I've become very close to over the last couple of years, I, I'm just I'm fascinated by the Holocaust experience and the horrors of that. And look, I I don't have the talent to be an author. I I, I just don't. That's whatever talents I have that doesn't fit in. But if, for example, I I decided that I came up with the idea of a book about you know, a, a young boy in living in, in Austria in 1938 when Hitler annexed Austria. And, you know, it, it led to all, all the things that it led to. If I decided I wanted to write a fictional book, and, and let's say for the sake of argument that the, 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 the character I chose, I wanted to write about a young Jewish boy living in Austria in 1938 when Hitler uh, annexed Austria. Okay, and so I go there and I spend six months or a year and I, I'm researching this and I find places and I spend time in the library and I talk to people and I decide I, I want to write that, that book. Well, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm not a 10-year-old Jewish boy living in Austria in 1938, but does that mean I, I can't write about a fictional story about that? that isn't that the whole idea of... Of, of what fiction is all about. Now, again, if you want to say, okay, well, her description of this or her description of that was, was incorrect, well, you, you can always do that. Trust me. You know, when I read, when I read John Grissom books, when I, when I read some of the, the books about things that, you know, the legal process or, or whatever, or, you know, what it's like to be a prosecutor. Some of those times I kind of say, well, that's sort of a stretch that you have that. But again, it's the creative license that goes on. If you want to criticize this book on its merits, by all means, criticize the book on its merits. And I, and I haven't read it. It's just, I'm looking at this controversy, um, one person after another, after the, but, but the author saying, okay, the author has now been the story. How dare, you know, somebody choose to write this story if, they are not of that same ethnic background. Let's talk to Jeff in Milwaukee. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Um, you know, Ken Follett wrote a book in 1989 called Pillars of the Earth. Yep. It's a historical fiction talking about a guy by the name of Tom Builder who built churches in the 1400s. Are we not supposed to read that book? Because Ken Follett, Obviously, didn't re, didn't live in the 1400s, right? I, I just don't understand why people have to pick at little things. Right. Well, just some be, yeah. Well, people be, don't. Obviously, you know, some people crazy. don't consider it to. Yeah, some people. I mean, thanks to call. Obviously, don't consider it to be a little thing. Can Can Mark Twain not write a book? from a perspective of, say, a runaway slave, for example, because Mark Twain wasn't a, a runaway slave. I mean, no, the, the whole idea is is fiction. You, you see this all the time. I was watching on, um, on, on TV on Sunday. I was re-watching their, every Sunday on, on AMC. They're showing, it's a Breaking Bad marathon. They're, they're showing one season of Breaking Bad in its entirety every Sunday. Okay, so the people that, I understand it's TV, not books. The people that wrote the, the TV show Breaking Bad, um, you, you, they had female writers. 
All right. Well, the story is about a, a white male teacher who breaks bad after he gets diagnosed with cancer. Okay. Can you not have female writers because those female writers don't understand what it's like to be a male cancer patient? I mean, and of course, the answer would be would, would be no. Now, I understand that in, in many respects, your background might make it easier to write a, a particular book. For example, let's say you're you're writing a book about the Holocaust and your grandparents or your great-grandparents had gotten caught up in that. Okay, so I understand that might give you an added perspective. It, it, might, it might inform some of the choices you make. It might make it a better book, but does that mean that, you know, you, you can't write that book if you don't have that experience? And, and my answer would be no. So I guess I find this entire discussion to be silly. I don't know if this is a good book or not, right? I, I, I take no position on that. Um, if at the same time, if it tells a compelling story, I mean, the fact that the woman herself is not, you know, a native of Mexico, is not a Latina per se, that, that's not a re- reason not, it's not a reason not to buy it, and it's not a reason to criticize her, period. This is Jeff Wagner. This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Do you have a ridiculous or amazing story from a previous road trip you've taken? Are you planning on going to the Madison Camper and RV Show and Sale? Well, head to News Radio 620 WTMJ's Facebook page. Comment with your best road trip story to win five tickets to the show. We'll pick the best five. We'll pick the five best stories by 10 a.m. on Wednesday, January 29th. All right, one final update on a story that I have been talking about for the last week or so. Six people wanted to run for Milwaukee County Executive. Two of those individuals, former State Senator State Senator Jim Sullivan, who wouldn't have been a bad candidate, and Mayor of Glendale, Brian Kennedy, who I don't think would have necessarily been a great candidate, they both turn in more than 2,000 signatures on their nominating papers to get on the ballot. The problem is they outsourced this. Instead of getting the signatures themselves, they hired... Um, a, a community organizer to go do at least part of this. And the per- people they hired scrap because under state law, you're only allowed, one person is only allowed to, ter- to circulate nominating petitions for one candidate for that office. That, that's just the way it works. And the law says if you have somebody that circulates multiple peti- can- can- petitions for multiple candidates, the first signatures you get are valid and everything after that gets thrown out. So these candidates don't know that the people that they fobbed this job off on don't know that, you know, they're, they've got the same people going out and circulating multiple petitions. What happens is one of the other candidates blows the whistle on this, and ultimately the state elections board and a circuit judge in Milwaukee say the, these signatures aren't valid. The law is very, very clear got to strike them down. Yesterday, Kennedy and Sullivan went to the appeals court in Madison asking for an emergency stay. Let us be on the ballot. They're printing up the ballots. I think they started yesterday. And yesterday afternoon, the appeals court said, nope, sorry, they they denied the appeal, finding that the law is very, very clear here. Now, look, I I, again, I, I think 
certainly Sullivan, would have been a, a relatively formidable candidate. You know what? Might have made a decent county executive. Certainly in comparison to some of the other people that are going to run for county executive, might might have done a good job. So it's unfortunate that he got knocked off the ballot. But here's, here is the lesson that candidates moving forward need to learn, and that is that you can't cut corners. Now, maybe they thought it was a good idea to curry favor with some of these community organizers by throwing them some monies, and there's nothing illegal about this, throwing them some money so they go out and get some signatures, and maybe then they'll support them in the communities or whatever. Nothing wrong with that. But the problem is when you outsource that stuff, you take all sorts of risks. And this is one of the examples of the bad stuff that can happen. So maybe the lesson of this moving forward for candidates for office is, When it comes to the small stuff or what you think is the small stuff, getting the signatures to get yourself on the ballot, don't outsource it. Don't trust other people. Just do it yourself. It's not that hard. And then you don't have this issue. And again, I'm I'm actually I'm kind of sorry that these guys got struck off the ballot, but they screwed up. They screwed up big time. The law is very clear, and and yet they don't get a chance to run, and that's unfortunate. But at the end of the day, they have nobody but themselves and the community organizer that they hired to blame for this.